Hello and welcome to the GLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Today's podcast features Geoffrey Hughes, a lecturer in anthropology from the Department of Sociology, Philosophy and Anthropology at the University of Exeter. He is also the co-editor of a forthcoming special issue by the Cambridge Journal of Anthropology, Ugly Emotions and the Politics of Accusations. Today's discussion centres on authority and how perceptions of authority change with the development of technology, particularly social media. Our guest has worked on these issues in Jordan, where according to a recent study, some 58% of the population are social media users. His research focuses on ways in which people believe social media has affected their own authority. This research can be found in a recent GLD working paper, Tribes Without Shakes, Technological Change, Media Liberalization and Authority in Network Jordan, available on the GLD website. We hope you enjoy the show. So thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us and, and welcome to, to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I love your paper because one of the things that I found really fascinating and, and, and frankly just fun to read was the way in which you basically sort of give recounts of three different profiles, right? You look at the sheikh, the police officer, and the journalist um, and think about how they see their, their authority being shaped by, by social media. Um, first, can you give us just a little bit of a background in terms of how you did this research and, uh, you know, is the shake that you're sort of recounting, is this a shake or is this sort of a composition of, of, of sort of experiences? And, and just tell us a little bit about how you've come to the conclusions that we're going to be discussing. Yeah, so I've I've been living in Jordan off and on um, since uh, the early 2000s now, and uh, I've spent about four years there all told, maybe a little bit more. Um, and I, for this particular project, I did about 40 interviews uh, with a, a range of members of the security apparatus, journalists, uh, and sheikhs. Uh, and what I was trying to do uh, was be very careful about understanding them as individuals, but also thinking about them as social types. So when I talk about these three profiles, what I'm trying to do is sort of take the things that I heard the most often, but I'm trying to... Uh, focus on a particular person's uh, narrative. So I, I sort of cut out a lot of the more identifying information to sort of protect them, but also to emphasize the more sort of general points. Um, and, and so that was sort of the, the idea. And then the, uh, to, to sort of to give people a sort of a, what we call in anthropology, a thick description of, of these social types. Which I find really, really interesting. And, and I think also, um, you know, for our, for our listeners, it might be helpful to give a sense of you know, first of all, what a sheikh does. When we get to the policemen, I think we have a sense of what policemen do, although I think there, too, there's, there may be differences in Jordan. But can you start by giving a, a, just an idea of what a sheikh is doing? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, a sheikh is a very interesting term, and it can mean a lot of different things. Um, so it can have a religious connotation, obviously, uh, or it can have a, a connotation um, that's quite secular, depending on, on who's using it and in what context. Normally, what it refers to is a sort of a senior male figure, uh, normally has white hair, uh, many children and grandchildren, and has basically sort of gained some sort of social status in the community through either his learning or through his control of wealth and power. Um, and then uh, the primary role that sheikhs have within a society like Jordan um, as in much of the rest of the Middle East, is often framed in terms of dispute resolution. 
Um, so they tend to as you know sort of engage with the world as a series of conflicts calling out for their own um, moderate you know sort of moderating influence. And they'll try to insert themselves into these conflicts. And in a lot of ways, they actually derive their power from their ability to to sort of to solve conflicts between people who they're ostensibly not related to. Um, and, and so what you see um, happening in a context uh, like we see here um, is that there's a question, especially as you have states and courts and police, is, is what, what use do we have for, for such a figure at all? Um, but in the Jordanian case, a lot of these people have actually managed to maintain uh, very powerful roles for themselves, despite the existence of an ostensibly very strong state in Jordan. And why is that? I mean, how do we understand why sheikhs continue to, to be so important in something like dispute resolution when there are courts available and you know, one can go to the police, etc.? Yeah, I think that this is a, a, a very controversial question in a place like Jordan. So people who uh, are you know, sort of antagonistic towards this system of dispute resolution tend to see uh, the fingerprints of the state. So they sort of tend to argue that the state actually on some level appreciates this and sees this as a very useful tool for actually uh, increasing its reach in certain ways, uh, but then also with very negative repercussions at the same time. Uh, now, people who uh, see this as a legitimate system tend to see this as coming not from the state, but rather from the society itself. And they see it as a refusal uh, of state practices, which they often find to be cumbersome and unnecessarily complex and distant from the sort of the everyday life ways of, of people themselves. Um, and I think the reality is probably somewhere in between, that there's definitely, I think, uh, a lot of people who do find this to be a very legitimate system. And as I think we'll discuss as we, we sort of get into the details, there's actually some very uh, attractive features of this kind of a system for uh, uh, a state that's looking to extend its power in particular ways. Can you give us a sense when you say that they, you know, the, the first set of people um, are concerned about negative repercussions? from the system. Can you give us a sense of what they mean by that or what those those negative repercussions are? Yeah, so um, when, you, when you look at Jordan on the whole, I think it's very important to emphasize that it's a very safe country. Um, it's pretty low crime rates um, and certainly none of the sorts of, of violence that you would associate with a lot of other parts of the Middle East. Uh, but that being said, there are uh, moments when uh, conflict between extended kin groups, uh, which are often referred to as tribes in Jordan, um, do spiral out of control. And there are these moments, uh, and we can talk maybe a little bit later about what th this actually looks like, but there are moments when you'll get uh, sort of um, conflicts boiling over between two different groups. Uh, and rather than, than relying on the state to solve those problems, they'll take matters into their own hands, and you'll often get uh, sort of clashes between uh, different groups of armed men in the streets. Uh, and I think that's one of the most uh, crystallizing moments when people who are opposed to the system point to that uh, as the thing that makes it illegitimate. Now, at the same time, of course, uh, having a parallel system of justice that works outside of the formal court system also means that people who have privileged access to that system uh, can get forms of justice that other people don't have access to. So then there becomes a question of equity. Uh, there's a question both of people uh, literally or figuratively getting away with murder if they have the right connections and the, the sort of the right family networks. And then on the other hand, uh, people being subject to uh, horrific uh, crimes and not being able to uh, do anything about it because they, they, they lack recourse to that system and, and the, the courts are cowed or otherwise afraid of uh, getting involved in those matters. That makes a lot of sense. Now, when we think about the communities that they're helping to, in a sense, kind of to govern, um, 
to what extent would you, for example, in a in a village or in a or in a small town or even in the city, have more than one sheikh in a in a neighborhood or in an area? In other words, are are sheikhs uh, governing spatial areas, or are they governing, uh, say, tribal communities that cross spatial areas? Yeah, that's a very important point. So the, the the authority of a sheikh derives primarily from his lineage rather than geographic location. Um, so it is definitely possible to have more than one sheikh living in very close proximity to one another. Uh, now, that being said, um, property relations are also very heavily determined by kinship and lineage. Uh, so especially in a place like Jordan, where you have large ancestral lands that are being increasingly subdivided uh, with the passing of generations, uh, you often do get people clustering on the basis of their male, male lineages. And then that does mean that the spatial uh, the spatial logics map onto the uh, genealogical logics in, in some pretty um, isomorphic ways. And, you know, when we think about the relationship, too, between the state and these um, and these sort of sheikhs or this, this system, um, what Jordan has always struck me as a particularly interesting place because of the extent to which um, the state, in a sense, I mean, there's there's rules governing how the state and um, you know, tribal order essentially intersect. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Can you tell us a little bit about how that works in Jordan? Yes. Yeah, so in, in Jordan, there's been a whole series of attempts to negotiate the relationship between these tribes and the state. And this is, of course, what people who see this tribal system coming from the state will, will really emphasize. Um, so starting with uh, British colonialism in particular, there was an attempt to differentiate out different kinds of, of Jordanians, and, and very much in the logic of, of indirect rule, to rule different groups of people according to different um, sets of rules. And the, uh, the Bedouin, and especially the nomadic Bedouin, uh, were quickly incorporated into uh, the British uh, sort of state apparatus that they were building. Uh, and one aspect of this was under the authority of, of the uh, leader of that initiative, uh, uh, Glub Basha, as he's known in Jordan or John Beige Hot uh, Glub, as he's known in the West, um, there was this uh, attempt basically to codify uh, and separate out a sort of a Bedouin tribal law that would work in these um, especially marginalized rural areas uh, for the, the sort of the members of that nascent uh, security apparatus. And then they would, in, in effect, enforce a different set of rules, which would be for the peasantry and especially after 1948, the, the Palestinian refugees who would then come in and be folded into these more sedentary communities. Uh, now, over time, this has been negotiated in various ways. There have been attempts to get rid of this wholesale. Um, and a lot of what we see now basically goes back to a agreement between uh, the then uh, King Hussein, who's now the late King Hussein, who's been replaced by his son, uh, and the tribal leaders, uh, which is that basically they had found that in an attempt to completely get rid of uh, tribal law, that they had basically actually encouraged it to, you know, sort of insinuate itself even more deeply into people's lives uh, with no real state recourse. Um, but there was an attempt basically to limit it to three particular crimes. And those crimes are um, the first one being uh, blood or dam, as they call it, uh, which are uh, basically homicide cases. Uh, and then ard, uh, or honor crimes. So this would be anything to do with sort of sexual morality. Uh, and then the third would be uh, or cutting the face. And this uh, relates to the breaking of truces. So in terms of the sorts of crimes that the state uh, recognizes as legitimate matters of tribal law, those are the three ones that are, are now included. Um, and 
the the sort of the main idea, for instance, is that if someone say commits a homicide, uh, the idea is that um, there's you know, sort of generally a 15 year you know sort of prison penalty for uh, committing a homicide. But if you can get the other family to agree to a blood money payment or some sort of financial compensation, um, and they reconcile themselves with the family of the murderer, uh, the idea is that half of the penalty is for the the family, half of the penalty is for the state. Uh, so the person will then only have to serve half of their sentence. Um, now, in practice, I actually know people who have uh, at least committed, you know, sort of involuntary manslaughter uh, and not served any prison time because they were able to reconcile with the family. So, of course, the reality is a lot more complicated uh, than uh, what these sorts of, of things that um, sheikhs will tell you over a, a cup of tea when you're meeting with them and, and you know, hearing about their role in society. Um, but but at least in terms of the way that things should work, as far as the state's concerned, that's sort of the the general the general balance of powers between them at this point in time. And what I think is fascinating in the Jordanian case, and and you know, chime in here if you disagree, is that you know we talk about this and and have to keep in mind that there's a, a sort of large pr proportion of the Jordanian society, right, particularly those from Palestinian origin, who actually often don't have the same sort of recourse as at least many of the East Bankers. It's not to say that there's no tribes among Palestinians, but that that's certainly is, is less available. Is that a fair statement in your in your view? Yeah, I mean, the, um, you know, the thing that you'll hear from Palestinians is, is generally that um, Jordan is a more tribal area. And they, they'll oftentimes uh, say, for instance, that the Jordanians actually taught us about tribes and that they see themselves as becoming more tribal in Jordan, which I think, again, points to uh, the role that the state plays in in sort of um, upholding this this general uh, social logic, uh, but I mean that being said, you know Palestine itself is a very diverse place, uh, and I think that one thing that often gets uh, sort of a little bit elided in these discussions is that when you think about um, the the transformation of the region, there I think that there was a, a sort of a north south uh, distinction that was more important before uh, the emergence of the state of Israel. Uh, between people in places like Beersheba and uh, sort of southern Jordan, in these much more desert regions uh, where they practiced uh, nomadic pastoralism on the one hand, uh, and then these more sedentary communities uh, to the northwest. Uh, uh, and that, and that um, oftentimes now we think when we, when we think about uh, Palestine, we sort of stereotype it as all, all peasants. And when we think about Jordan, we stereotype it as all Bedouin also nomadic pastoralists, but I think the reality is a little bit more complicated. But in general, I think you're right that um, the, uh, the East Bankers have historically had um, more of, a, of an elaborated system of uh, tribal law, uh, whereas, I mean, if you, if you go to, uh, say, Jerusalem, I mean, they've had Sharia courts there that have been operating continuously since the 16th century. Um, so there's, there's been sort of much longer history of state influence there and very direct and intimate state influence in people's lives. Thank you. I think this is really helpful background now to think about, um, like I said, the, say, for example, the profile of the sheikh that you put forth in the paper and how we think about why the sheikh, you know, particularly views social media as threatening. And I think um, I, want, I want to say that as views, views it as threatening because I think you make a really nice point in the paper that this is not necessarily about the reduction of authority, right? It's really about these perceptions of how social media is shaping um, authority of different of different actors. 
Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how the Sheikh, you know, as you put it, is is seeing the, the social media, why, why he sees it as threatening power? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think this is a really good point, is that the perception is not necessarily the reality. So I think that... Um, the reason why people like, and I think this Sheikh in particular probably is actually losing power uh, as a result of, of social media. Um, in his case, I mean, uh, the particular person I decided to use to epitomize this, I mean, um, he's not very technologically savvy. I don't even think that he's particularly good at reading and writing. I mean, I'm sure that he's, he's you know, sort of done a lot with whatever educational opportunities he did have. Um, but he's a sort of a very elderly person in a very fast changing world. Um, at the same time, I do think that people who are a little younger than him will be able to adapt and will, will find ways of using these technologies to actually supplement and accentuate uh, the privileges that they already do have as a result of their age and gender and control of economic resources. In another paper uh, that I've written along these lines, I talk about what I call like a, a Facebook sheikh. And this is another phenomenon that's emerging is oftentimes these are uh, people who are uh, a, a couple of decades younger um, and do have better literacy, a better sense of the world, better familiarity with technology. Uh, and they're able to um, build large followings on social media to some degree um, using the fact that they have access to resources and all of those uh, sorts of things that um, make them hard to ignore. Um, and then just adding in social media as another uh, aspect of how they try to extend their reach and authority and prestige. Um, but I think in this particular Sheikh's case, you know, sort of the ship has sailed for him. Um, I think speculatively looking forward, there's ways in which you could see uh, a new generation of sheikhs as actually being able to, to benefit from this. Although um, those that, that have sort of really taken to social media quickly are often uh, actually mocked for this, right? So they're, you know, sort of to call someone a Facebook sheikh is generally not a compliment, uh, at least not yet. Um, and other terms will, will, for instance, will be called a, a Chinese shape. The idea of China here being of, of a, a shoddily made, you know, foreign product, you know. Interesting. Interesting. Now, you're pointing to the generational shift, and, and this brings me to the second question I had, because when I read the profile of the policeman, right, shifting to that, um, you make the point that the policeman is essentially decades younger than the sheikh, right, um, which suggests that it's not at least only a question about, you know, education, because a policeman is also more educated in in your in your telling. Yeah. Um, so it's not only about education and generation, and so you know, is this the sort of the older person who has a hard time accessing technology? In this case, it's a different sort of notion of threat. Can you spell that out a little bit and 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 sort of compare that then with the sheikh? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, on one level, right, these are often stages in a single life trajectory, right? So um, a lot of these sheikhs in Jordan are ex-members of the security services themselves. And so there's a very sort of natural career trajectory where, you know, as a privileged son of a, you know, sort of a family with, you know, means and standing in Jordan, you enter the security services, you get promoted throughout your career, you retire at a relatively young age, um, and go into business for yourself, and then you begin amassing a reputation for yourself uh, as a sheikh. Um, and, and so there's a way in which I don't think this man in particular will go on to be a sheikh because he has uh, older brothers who are also um, sort of very powerful in their own right. Um, but, um, you know, you can see how a lot of times the police and the sheikhs have similar sensibilities. Um, and I think in terms of those sensibilities, and this really, I think, takes us to another really important aspect of uh, what social media is doing to uh, 
relations of authority in a place like Jordan, um, is that there's a sense in which, uh, in previous times, the ability to speak authoritatively was more carefully controlled. The dynamics of hospitality, uh, the ways in which um, spaces in which politics are done uh, were, were very carefully designed to exclude certain kinds of voices, obviously women, to a, a lesser degree younger men. Um, and what's, I think, deeply destabilizing about um, social media to the perspective of, of people like, uh, like uh, the police officer and the sheikh um, is that really anybody can contribute to the discussion. And anyone can say whatever they want. They can even hide behind the veil of anonymity, which is a real source of concern. Um, previously, it wasn't so easy to, to sort of to um, call out these sorts of powerful men, uh, but increasingly, uh, they don't have control over their own image and their own, uh, their own sort of reputation in the same way that they used to. People can make claims about them uh, that they then have to address uh, in ways that they maybe didn't have to before. Right. So essentially, there's really two issues, if, as I hear it then. One is this question about the democratization of intervention, right, that I can now, you know, sort of put forth my opinion or my voice, and, and you can't necessarily control it the way that you could before, right, if you're the state or if you're some of these other authorities. Um, and the second one is that I that as a, as a previous authority who could not only control but then could control the sets of, of um, accusations or the sets of comments made about me, I'm now subject to those becoming public in a way that they weren't before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, on the democratization of information, the, perhaps the most striking of your profiles is then the journalist, right? Because it seems that the journalist is in a position where, you know, their monopoly, if you will, over these, over these issues has been, has been sort of eroded. So I'd like you to speak a little bit to the sets of concerns that were raised by the journalists or the sets of journalists that make up this profile. Yeah, so I, I think also in the case of journalists, um, that I think that's exactly right, that they, they did feel like they had m more prestige in a certain sense when things were more limited. Um, of course, one of the things that, that, that complicates this, right, is that the Jordanian media was also much more controlled uh, before the advent of social media. And, and there's an interesting dynamic here um, because there's a question of to what degree we're dealing with a political shift versus a, a technological shift. And this was something I, uh, I think I discussed in the, as we were sort of revising this for publication. Uh, it's often difficult to even really disentangle where the one stops and the other starts. So there was a very sort of carefully curated state media apparatus uh, that sat alongside um, an intelligence apparatus uh, in Jordan um, prior to the advent of, of uh, first satellite TV and then social media. Uh, but what happened, I think, starting in the early 2000s uh, was you had a proliferation of new technologies that basically made it impossible for the state to maintain its monopoly on the, the sort of the dissemination of information, uh, at least at certain scales. Um, and this really creates a very destabilizing environment for journalists. So journalists, on the one hand, they get all of these opportunities to, to speak and to act out in ways that they couldn't before, and that can be very enticing for them. Uh, at the same time, though, journalists are also public figures, and they're very well known. Um, and um, this has also been where a lot of the problems arise. So um, one of the big shadows that sort of is cast over all of this research uh, is the assassination of a prominent Christian journalist named Nahad Hatar. Uh, right as I was beginning this research project. 
Um, and it was after a, a whole campaign of incitement against him, uh, where he basically started uh, sharing a political cartoon, uh, criticizing the so-called Islamic State, uh, and was then basically accused of blasphemy uh, and eventually uh, murdered on the courthouse steps of his uh, trial for blasphemy. Um, and so this has really had a, a chilling effect on uh, journalism, is that there's this sense that on the one hand, um, the sort of the clarifying influence of the heavy hand of, of state censorship doesn't really exist in the same way, although there's still plenty of censorship. Um, but instead, what you get is these sorts of, of um, you know, backlashes from the, the un, undifferentiated mob uh, that are very hard to predict and very capricious. And this makes people very suspicious and creates a whole sort of, you know, hall of mirrors effect uh, that makes it very difficult for people to know who's really in charge and who's pulling the strings. That's interesting. And when you get back to the sort of who's really in charge and who's pulling the strings, there seems that there's two issues. One is about um, sort of who has authority and influence and how that may be shifting, right? Um, the other one is a question about whether or not it's not less about authorities, but it, what it's in a, going back to our question about communities, right? So one of the other sort of subtexts, as I read it in the paper, is a question of whether or not tribe loses influence over time, um, and and then you you sort of you end the discussion with what you call the Abutaya file, file, right, which is this case with the um, Jordanian officer who is accused and then is, is convicted of shooting and killing the three American uh, Green Berets. So as, as I see it, your argument then is that, you know, the tribes continue to actually have, play a very important role, right, um, even if there's some, some sort of shifting in terms of generational shifts or other ways in which uh, things are shifting within the sort of the, the authority plane. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, because you have this, this sort of hall of mirrors effect and you never really know who's on whose side. And there are these, these questions about foreign influence. And, uh, you know, I mean, one thing that was really striking about um, studying uh, journalism that I hadn't really anticipated uh, was that basically I would be seen almost as like admitting oneself to being a spy and almost as if one is studying espionage. Um, which I thought was kind of surprising. And I had, I had expected that, you know, a lot of the more conspiratorial uh, things that I had heard about the media would, would sort of a little bit of probing and, and you would realize that, oh, actually, this is all pretty on the up and up. But actually, the more I, I tried to study the, this uh, online media sector, the more sort of uh, dodgy the whole thing started to seem to me, actually. Um, and I think one effect of that that people have um, is that it makes it hard to engage in the sort of politics uh, that we associate with, you know, liberal parliamentary democracy, where you have, you know, clearly articulated political programs that are basically taken at face value. Um, and I think that what you get instead is this belief that you can't really trust anybody, uh, but that people who are united through a long and ongoing history of shared collective defense, um, that that sort of becomes a kind of an unfakeable bond, in a sense, that because... Um, you know, you know, on a certain level that if a member of your family were to kill somebody else, that you would be held responsible for it, uh, that that makes it very difficult uh, for you to just sort of ignore those types of, of communities and those types of bonds. Um, and so that sort of ties people together in a very powerful way. But that's an interesting question, right? So one of the other striking, striking aspects of Jordan is the extent to which it's become increasingly urbanized, right? So, yeah. you know, it's a very urban area, and one can 
you know, in a sort of modernization theorist would have said, well, as we become more urban, you expect people to be less, you know, kind of less beholden to these types of identities. Now, empirically, that hasn't seemed to be the case. Um, but the way that you just put why you stay committed had more to do with the sort of the fear of how others might um uh, how others might sort of view you or how you may be sort of responsible for um, what others in your group do, right? Yeah. Um, which I think is one part of it, but are there also still positive, sort of positive incentives, positive reasons why people um, are sort of continue to see this identity as being a very powerful one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that um, there there's definitely a, a sort of a, a collective aid uh, that's also associated with this. Um, I mean, of course, uh, people from the outside often see it as corruption, you know, that people are getting jobs or economic opportunities because of their family connections. There's a, a, a wide-ranging discourse in, in the Arab world of what's called WASTA, uh, which oftentimes maps onto this pretty cleanly. Um, and so especially, you know, from the perspective of, of those who uh, can draw on these sorts of identities. It can really make make a difference. I mean, you know, it can it can mean the difference between uh, a stable job in the military for thirty years and um, being sort of thrown back on the informal private sector, for instance, and having to to really sort of struggle to make ends meet. Um, so I think that's a very powerful positive incentive. Um, I think other positive incentives, though, are also um, I guess more intangible. I mean, I think that there is. Um, a, uh, a, a sort of a, a psychological payoff to this as well. I mean, I think that, that some people, um, especially in sort of ch the, the, there's a phenomenon of, of uh, tribal memes. So sort of taking, you know, sort of a, a, a nice airbrushed uh, picture of your, your tribe's name and, you know, sort of matching it up with maybe like a nice SUV and a camel and, a, you know, a cup of coffee or something, you know, sort of that this idea of, of being tied in with this prestigious group of people who have, a certain status within Jordanian society. I think that's also another positive uh, aspect of all of this, which of course does relate to uh, the job prospects and, and ability to get investment capital uh, that also is associated with uh, membership in these tribes. Right, and it's also worth noting that in in Jordan there is a. Um, it's not only that tribes matter, right, but there's a particular hierarchy to tribes in terms of some some tribes as being known as having you know, kind of more power or more influence with the state than other tribes. Right? Exactly. So particularly yeah. if you're from the, the more privileged tribes, then it's a, um, then it's something to keep, uh, keep alive as, as meaningful. So, exactly. Yeah. So then with that, can we come back to the Abutaya file for, for a moment and just have you explain to us um, how you viewed that in, the, in its significance? Yeah, so so basically, this was a case um, that um, started off pretty below the radar, and the, the both it seemed like the U.S. government and the Jordanian government were pretty eager to make this go away, uh, because it doesn't really conform to any of the the sorts of narratives I think that any any major political actor wanted to advance. Um, it's very unclear what actually happened, um, but the 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 upshot was that you had these. Uh, U.S. Uh, military trainers who were working secretly at this base in southern Jordan. And, and then what happened is that um, this man by the name of Marek Abutaya uh, was supposed to be guarding the base, and he opened fire on them uh, and killed them. Um, and it was everybody was always very clear that this wasn't about terrorism. 
that was something that everybody wanted to make very clear to me on all sides of this conflict. The Jordanian government uh, was very clear about this. The family was very clear about this. The U.S. government was actually incredibly clear about this not being a matter of uh, terrorism. But um, the claim in, in the trial was that Marek was basically defending the base, which is a sort of an absurd claim on one level, uh, but that, that basically that these, that these Americans had not followed the proper rules of engagement, and so therefore he wasn't, um, he wasn't really guilty. Uh, and when this finally did reach a conviction, uh, the family reacted very negatively to this. Um, and uh, when I, and as, as it happens, I basically had um, sort of known members of this family for, for over a decade. So I, was, I really had a front row seat to seeing them trying to process this and come to terms with this. Uh, and the the sort of the inside scoop that that they were trying to give me uh, and members of this family, this is both sort of um, powerful, you know, self-styled spokespersons for the family, and also just you know average folks who I'd known for a long time. Uh, the idea was that uh, there was something much darker afoot. Maybe there was a conflict over money or over who should be uh, getting a lot of the benefits uh, that were supposed to be going to the Syrian opposition. Uh, there was maybe some corruption involved. Uh, but that somehow or other that Marek was was supposed to be the fall guy for all of this, and that this was all this sort of um, elaborate conspiracy, uh, and that and that this was all now trying to be hushed up. And so the the family basically sort of then began protesting on behalf of their family member, uh, and basically saying that he wasn't guilty of what he had done. Uh, and this became a sort of a cause celebre in Jordan. And uh, you know, at, at its high point, you had Facebook groups, you know, closing in on you know. 100,000 members, and you had um, these sort of hit-and-run attacks across uh, southern Jordan where people would, you know, light tires on the street and pose with, uh, you know, assault rifles and, you know, sort of kafiyas uh, and, you know, sort of threaten darkly that, that things would happen if the, if the Hoytat tribe uh, wasn't given satisfaction. Uh, and, and this sort of went on for, for a while and became, you know, sort of the, you know, sort of given the research I was doing, it seemed like a very obvious way to try and probe the relationship between tribes and social media. So, and, and just to step back for a second, because you were talking about the family. I mean, when we're talking about the family in this case, about how many people are we talking about? Uh, we're probably talking, I mean, the Hoytat, we're, ta we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people here. Right. So it's not um, a, it's not yeah. a family in the sort of conventional sort of Western, nor you know, nuclear sense, I think. It's, no, it's, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it so it helps us to sort of see how they kind of both made use of of social media, but you know it also seems to be a really great example of how that still is is such a mobilizing force, right? That it's not just you know a person wasn't out by himself essentially, right? It's not Marek against the against the Jordanian regime. Um, um, and I also wanted to step back for one second because I think you said something important but um, that might be missed, which is you said that it wasn't in the interest of the Jordanians or the U.S., et cetera, to make this case a, an important case or to bring attention to it. Um, can you just say just a bit more about, about that relationship and why that was the case? Yeah, I mean, the, the Jordanian state is obviously a very sort of important ally of the U.S. government. And uh, Jordan has been a, a, a longtime source of, of support to a, a range of U.S. projects in the Middle East, um, not just peace with Israel, but also things like uh, intelligence expertise uh, and, and training expertise in various conflicts uh, in, in other regions. So the Jordanian, uh, the Jordanians train, uh, you know, the uh, Iraqi police, they train um, 
the uh, Palestinian police, uh, and they, they've also been very important in tracking down a lot of transnational terrorists for the U.S. Um, and so that's a very strong and close relationship, and they don't want that um, to be disrupted by um, these sorts of polarizing conflicts that, that sort of introduce an us-versus-them dynamic. And so what's interesting, right, about this is that in some ways, while it while it didn't necessarily sort of bring an us versus them dynamic to the U.S. and Jordanian relations, it definitely did bring it to the forefront of, you know, not just sort of Jordanian attention, but really world attention at that time, um, which I think is, is fascinating. So, you know, like I said, what what I really enjoyed about this work is that you're you're shining light on perceptions of changes in authority, right? Um, and the ways in which social media can can be sort of um, viewed, but also at the sort of the real ways in which social media is used. Um, and to me, that's a that's a nice it's a nice way to think through um, how authority might be changing in in Jordan. So, so I want to thank you for this, and also thank you for this conversation. I think it's it's really really great, both great work, but also a great chance to talk to you. Oh, thank you, thank you. It was great to have this opportunity. Thank you.